0: Well, good morning. It was excellent. Wonderful. One of the greatest fears that I think many parents and grandparents have is that their kids or grandkids would walk in the same mistakes that they did growing up, that their kids and grandkids would accumulate the same scars that they carry on the prodigal roads that they themselves walked. I think this is one of the areas that draws a, the content of a parent and grandparents' prayer most fervently to the Lord that their children and grandchildren would learn from those lessons and not make those same mistakes. And the book of Galatians, as we continue this morning, in a similar way, Paul shares a sit down on a couch with his spiritual grandkids and kids. And he sits with them and he shares with them at the very beginning of this letter, this thread of argument that runs through chapter 2, verse 14. And he shares with them this conversation, this hope that they will understand and they will learn from the race that he ran and not try to run it themselves, but in their case, they're being tempted to run it backwards. So if you remember, the Galatian believers have heard the gospel. Paul's already brought them the goodness of the gospel, this word meaning good news, that all of us, regardless of what you've done, that there is one that can give you forgiveness of sin. There's one who you can be adopted into. There's only one that can make you right with a holy God. And His name is Jesus. That this one will become sin for us. That He would bear upon His body the burdens of sinners like us. That He would die for sins. Once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he would defeat death and be raised again on the third day. And that all who trust in him, all who abide in him, Jew or Gentile, they will be brought into the family of God. This is the good news. This is the gospel message that was preached to the Galatian believers. Remember, they're they're not Jewish of of ethnicity. They're primarily uh, uh, ethnically Gentiles. It's non-Jewish. And they've heard the gospel and they've received the gospel and what's happened now is Paul's sitting down and sharing with them this story. He's giving them his story. He's giving them his background. That he was fervently and zealously running the Jewish race. And as he ran this race by God's grace, it points to Christ. It points to Christ. Jesus is the finish line. He is the Messiah that the, all the Old Testament and all the law points to. And what's happened now is the Gentile believers in this region of Galatia who are at the finish line, they're through the finish line, they they know the gospel, they're being tempted by false teachers to run the race backwards. They're being tempted to abandon Christ and add the law to what's already been finished. They're running the race backwards as though the starting line would give them peace, when peace is only available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we come to this letter, as we look at this very initial portion, we've walked through chapter 1, verse 1 through 10 last week, and we look at this section now in which Paul shares his story. My hope for us as we look at these few verses together is that we would understand two key components of every Christian's story. Two key components of every Christian's story. That every one of your stories, if you know Jesus Christ, if He's your King, you have a component of your life that is based upon your former life. And the second component of every one of our stories in this room, regardless of your, your background or your, your generation, is that your story has been consumed by Christ's story. That Your story, our testimony, this thing we call our testimony, is really actually... Christ's testimony consuming our testimony so that our identity, our value, our worth is not in the things that we have done or have been done to us or we ascribe to do, but our value is in what Christ has done by consuming us. The story of faith and forgiveness found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this story is designed for every one of us to share. You and I, if you're a Christian, you are called to be a storyteller. The story of the great king. He is the hero of all stories. And by God's grace, you and I have been made extras. Extras in the background, in the set, the person in the background. That's all of our stories. We're not the hero of our testimony, of our stories. Christ is the hero of every one of our stories, of Ella's story, of your story. Christ is the hero and he's meant to be shared. His story is meant to be shared to all people. And so my hope, my prayer for us this morning in this text is that you and I might be able to articulate the story of Christ through our former life being consumed by what Christ has done for us and is doing in us. And in this way, the two components of that story might go and encourage other believers to glorify God. Yes, we do pray that God might take the sharing of the story of the gospel and bring new people to life as the gospel is powerful enough to change lives, to flip them upside down. And every person that's here that knows Christ can share with you the story of how the gospel has impacted and uprooted and changed the course of their life. And yet the component we're going to look at of the application As we see later in the next few verses, is that when believers are able to hear the story of transformation from other believers, it leads them, it compels them to glorify God, regardless of the mire that they find themselves in. So, as you have your Bibles, let's begin this morning. If you don't have a Bible, please do grab the Pewback Bible in front of you, it will be in the book of Galatians. So let's begin in verse 11, as we'll notice first and foremost that disciples are continually called to share the story of their former life. You and I are called to be storytellers. We're called to share this story that part one is made up of our former life. So let's begin. Let me read for us verse 11 through 14. Paul writing to the the churches in Galatia, he says this. Now now actually, before I read verse 11, let's go back and look at verse 9, because he really picks up the thread there. Look at verse 9. And then we'll jump down to verse 11. It says in verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We talked about the applications for that last week. If you missed it, you can get online and listen to that. But look now at verse 11 as he compares it to himself. Verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, So, Paul begins, if you remember back in verse 1, he begins by validating his apostleship, his office, his standing, his authority, this unique position that no longer exists today. And he begins by saying, My apostleship, my authority that I have in the gospel, it was given by God. And now he says, The gospel that I've been given and given to you, it's also of God. So, this chain has no weak links. The chain of the argument, it, it does not have a weak link. What he's doing from the very beginning is pointing out that the false teachers, the, these Jewish teachers who have come into the church in Galatia and said, listen, Paul told you something, but either A, he didn't tell you the full story, or B, he's not really qualified to tell you what he told you. So, Paul, at the beginning of his letter, he, boom, he breaks both of those arguments. He wants to make sure it's understood that the content of the Gospel is correct and the courier of the Gospel is also authoritative and correct. There's no weak links. By the way, any teaching or teacher that's going to corrupt or pervert the Gospel has to attack those two foundations. Either A, they have to say this message is not actually true, sufficient, or hasn't been preserved. Or B, they have to attack the messengers that are delivering it. That's why that one group is called the Latter Day Saints. Right? There must have been a corruption at some point, but here we have the truth. Shake them at their core and catch the apples that fall off. Realize, believer, you stand, if you have the biblical gospel, you stand on the goodness of this deep-rooted reality that is given of God and gives us hope. And that's what he anchors in at the very beginning. He speaks of his former life. But God has an ability to take your life and to completely mess it up, doesn't he? Every one of us. You know, being in a college community, I find myself, you ever had the feeling like you didn't want to ask somebody something, but you asked them the question anyway? Have You ever done that? I think I do it. I did it like four times this morning already. Every time I see a college student, I cannot help myself but ask them, what are you studying and I know there's like a 50% chance that that college student, with fear and anxiety in their eyes, is going to say, I don't know. Right. And immediately, I took their good day and I flipped it on their head, and now they're just going to panic the rest of the morning. I don't know why I do it, but I can't stop but do it. I can't help myself. And if you do this, uh, occasionally you'll run across a, a student that will know exactly what they want to do. You ever met somebody like that? They'll know. They'll say, I'm going to do this, and this is how I'm going to do it, and then this is where I'm going to live, and this is where I'm going to retire. And you're like, you're 17 years old. This is a little extensive. But it's quite impressive. You and I have a way of mapping out our lives, don't we? Every one of us map out our lives. And every person that's met Christ had mapped out their lives before Christ came into the story. And Paul is one of those individuals, isn't he? Who mapped out his life. He was zealously persecuting the church of God, believing he was fulfilling the will of Yahweh for his life. And yet Christ intervened and turned it entirely backwards. Said another way, we might say that all of us have written out the story of our lives. We're just waiting for the, the editor to get back to us on any remarks. The Lord has a way of taking our former life and rewriting it for His glory. See, here's the deal, every one of us has similarities in our story. Yes, there's differences. All of us were born at a different time, in a different place. We've all experienced different hardships, different victories. And yet the reality is every one of us has a former life of some sort. Every one of us does. Just like none of us shares the exact former life that Paul does, or at least I'm going to assume none of us has zealously persecuted Christians trying to headhunt them. I hope not. But we all have this same idea in common. We had our life mapped out. We were living for our own glory. And yet when Christ intervened, He flipped that upside down and says, no, 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 you will be for my glory. And so we turn and we place our faith and trust in Jesus. He becomes the marker of our identity and worth and value. He becomes our purpose. He becomes our drive. To make disciples becomes our purpose in life. He flips our life upside down for His glory. And that's the beauty of the story of every believer. The former life that makes up our life is ultimately about His great story. All of us have this in common with us. Now, I want to note this. In Judaism, how did Paul live his life? This is important, I think, to catch. How did Paul live his life? He was so devout in Judaism as he goes through this, he says what? I was advanced more than anybody else my age. And he'll, he'll continue this thread on in, next, in the next chapter and point out his area of study and his devotion of his life. The Jewish life demanded an authority over what you put in your body, over what you did at certain days of the calendar. It was controlled. Every aspect of your life, the law demanded, the Hebrew law demanded, how you lived your life. It was an all-encompassing element that your life became synonymous with the Jewish faith. And so how contrastive is the baptism? Can you imagine being in the first century world for ethnic Jewish men and women that would now become baptized in allegiance to Jesus Christ? That they're saying obedience to Yahweh means being baptized and submissive into His name. To declare an allegiance to Him isn't to take that commitment level and dial it back. By the way, I think that's part of the argument he's going to hit in chapter 5 and 6. It doesn't mean the the standard for the Christian life decreases. It simply means the allegiance by which we please Yahweh has been clarified under an allegiance of Jesus Christ. So the Christian life isn't meant to be compartmentalized to say it's this thing that I do at this day of the week and the rest is mine. It's to say, no, no, the whole life is His and to please Yahweh is to, to live for Christ. He is indeed the Messiah. That's the goodness of the story that we have here. How committed was Paul to his former life? What did he do? Look what he said. He persecuted the church of God violently, and he tried to destroy it. What did God do to his life? He goes from persecuting the church of God to nurturing the church of God. That wasn't Paul's plans as he went to Damascus, was it? He didn't ask for permission to go and nurture the church of God, but that's what God would do through him. He persecuted the church of God violently. Is that how Paul advanced the kingdom of God? Is that what he argues in our Sunday school class that meets before this? Justin was teaching, and he he pointed out this idea of submission to the Lord and how it's to impact every aspect of our life. Submission to the Lord in every aspect of our life. He would go from one willing to shed the blood of others to having his blood shed for the church of God. He would go from one ultimately who tried to destroy, the God, to, try to destroy the church of God to try to expand the church of God by proclaiming the gospel. As you look at your life, what is your former life? Have you ever told anyone about your former life? Is it possible that God desires you as a believer? To be one who's in the business of sharing of your former life. I believe there is. And I believe God will use that in His glory and for His plan. Paul remains sold out to God, but he has a new and clear allegiance for his life. Ask yourself the question, and I'm to ask myself the question, what are the things that we're sold out for? What are the things that make us passionate? What are the things that, that just get us motivated? And ask as one of them to share about your former life. Key word being former. Because the former gets consumed by the present life. That's the goodness of our God. Every one of us has a former life. It leads into the second idea. So we don't just stay in the former life. You're not bound by your former life. But you're working in the second idea of your story becomes consumed by his story. So when you speak about your former life as a follower of Christ now, it forces you to speak about the Christ who has consumed your story. It's not about us. Our former life is simply a lead-in. It's an icebreaker to talk about the true hero of the story. Look at point number two in verse 15 and 16. Component number two. Disciples are continually called to share the story of what? Of God's redeeming grace found through faith in His Son. Disciples are continually called to share the story of God's redeeming grace found through faith in His Son. Verse 15, here we go. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Now certainly he's referring to his experience on the road to Damascus Some of us in here come to Christ at a young age by God's grace, like little Ella or myself, little me. And some, by God's grace, and those that come to faith at a young age, by God's grace, the same grace, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that rescues a hard-hearted, even young one, and brings them to faith in Christ. And some of us come to Christ at a much older age, And so the contrast in your life between your former life and your present life as a Christian is probably a lot more stark, right? Because you've been given over to live for your glory for a long time, and anybody that lives for their glory will leave a trail of destruction, right? And that may look different in every one of our lives, but it all includes the same trail of brokenness. And so the stories may be more contrastive and more stark, but the reality is they have the same plot point, They have the same plot twist. At some point, you're living for your glory, and then that little preposition, but, butts its way in. That was a lot cheesier when I said that out loud. That was better in my head before it came out. We all have this point in our life where where, where this, this preposition happens, and it changes the course of our life. We know what our life is going to look like. You have it all mapped out. At this age, I'll do this. At this age, I'll do this. And this preposition comes in and it flips everything on its head. That's what happens with Paul here. He's got it all mapped out. He shares his life. But verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, this, this transition statement, every Christian has these three words in common. And that's what combined us together. It was fun. We had a, a few friends over from our church family, had a game night, and we realized afterwards that there was somebody there that was. <clears throat> If you count my son, my kids, they're single digits. Uh, they didn't contribute too much to the conversations, but they're two. Like I'm not, ins- if you don't know my family, I'm not insulting my nine-year-old or something. We don't have one. If we have a two-year-old and a little baby. We realize there's a single-digit person. There was a teenager there. There were people, in their tw- a couple in their 20s, a couple in their 30s, a couple in their probably 40s and maybe 50s. And yet here we are able to sit around a table and enjoy fellowship together. Why? Because we all have the same interests or backgrounds? No. We all share the same preposition. But there was a former life that brings you together with the people around you in a way that nothing else in this world can unite. The work of the Lord intervening in our life. These prepositions are all over the Scriptures, by the way. I'll give them to you. I won't give you time to flip there, and that's not a challenge. You can try and flip there before I can read them, but I bet you can't get there in time. I want you to write them down, though, they're all through the Scriptures. It's the plot twist. The apex of the plots. These little prepositions. The first one, Romans 5, 7-9. through 9, says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even to die. Verse 8, But God, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise... God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, this is regarding ministry fruitfulness. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. Number four, Ephesians through 2, 3-5. through five. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the butt God that all these things rest upon, Acts 13, 29-30. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. That would be a sad end of the story, wouldn't it? But what do we celebrate? Did little Ella stay under the water? It'd be a tragic end to our service. No, Ella came up out of the water. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Paul's but God experience is rescue and salvation out of a life of Judaism, that zealous Judaism that ultimately pointed to the Messiah Jesus. The Galatian believers were rescued from a life not of Judaism, but a life of paganism in which they worshipped created things. And in Christ, they were able to know the Creator. That's the but God of their life. And that's the but God they're being tempted to add to. They're tempted to chase Judaism. But ultimately Paul says, don't do it. I ran the race. Rest in the gospel. You're already at the finish line. So rest. Rest. Is this good news? This good news. For all of us, it leads the Christian to say, but for the grace of God go I. But by the grace of God go I. I looked up that saying. I wonder where did that, say, that saying come from? I've said it so many times in my life. I looked it up and I found that most would attribute this saying there, but by the grace of God go I to John Bradford. He was a Protestant in the 1500s uh, when Bloody Mary uh, took the throne in, in the 1500s in England. And Mary had it out for Protestants. And there was a lot of drama and conflict that happened as a Roman Catholic queen She was called Bloody Mary because of what she would do in her reign. And she had taken John Bradford and she had put him with others in the Tower of London. And while there, Bradford looked out of the window and saw a criminal, a hardened criminal that was being led to his execution. And it's believed then at that point that he looked and said that statement, There but for the grace of God go I. God's unique providence, he would end up going that route for the crime of his faith, he would be burned at the stake. But the believer who knows Christ, we speak of our former life and it leads us with a heart of humility to when you see the news stories of tragedy and despair and corruption and criminal perceptions, it leads the believer, it compels the believer to make that same statement, "Oh God, but by the grace of God go I. Compassion and humility are the only rational responses for the Christian and how we go about sharing our story. It is God who, who Paul continues on, and he says, what? Set me apart. God set me apart before I was born. This sounds a lot like Jeremiah 1.5, doesn't it? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. My friends, make no mistake. Our human life begins at conception. The Lord works in the womb. All life is worthy of dignity and respect. The human life in the womb, the Lord knits together. We ought to defend. We ought to care for them, fight for them as human beings. Paul says here, of God's goodness and His grace that lavishes upon him, that the Lord was working even before He was knit together in His mother's womb. Oh, what grace the Lord gives. He would take us as sinners and shower compassion upon us the saving grace of a personal God while we were yet enemies of God while we were yet enemies of God Christ would become our righteousness is that grace worthy of your life is that a good story to tell it's a story we're all compelled to tell It's our job to be sold out for sharing and showing hospitality to others to point them to the gospel. This is our purpose in life. The gospel is sufficient. The story of God is sufficient to take a life, to take a hardened rock and bring it to flesh. It can take dry bones and bring them to life. And that's why we share the gospel. It's not us. It's not our persuasion. It's the power of the gospel that truly has the ability to save. And so we're called to be storytellers, every one of us, until the day we die because his story is sufficient to save all that come to Christ will be saved so tell the story of your former life tell the story of how the God who saves has consumed your story the Lord is good is he not amen the Lord is good now first we notice these two components that that were called to share the story of our former life and secondly That the story we share is ultimately one that's consumed by the story of faith found in His Son. And it leads us, at the very least, to other believers that will happen every time. To this third idea that we see in the text. The disciples are continually edified. That's built up. And they glorify God when they hear stories of transformation. When you hear the story of the Lord working in the life of another to change the course of their life, it impacts you. It impacts you. It leads you to glorify God. Which means why does an application right away, before we even get to this text, the application is this. If I refuse to share how the Lord is impacting my life, I am depriving other believers of being edified by hearing how the Lord is transforming my life into His image and away from my glory. So look at the text. Look at the text. Verse 16, we'll pick it up there. It says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Now notice, I'm going to point out here in a moment, this sounds like random geography, but it's not. We'll see what he does with it. But notice the places. Circle the places in your Bible if you like. It says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to, to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went up into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea. Remember, that's a geographic region. be like talking about Galatia and then Judea that are in Christ. Verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what did they do in verse 24? They glorified God because of me. A few components to this. A few components. This is an apologetic. It, It literally, what we just read is this huge defense of the faith that would have already dismantled many of the arguments that the false teachers have used to try to get them to distrust the goodness of the gospel. So he goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a higher elevation, so you go up to it. And he went up to Jerusalem after three years. He goes and he sees them. And what does the church in Jerusalem do? Remember, you're talking about Galatians. Remember, Gentile believers in the church are being impacted by people coming from Jerusalem and adding to the gospel. Saying, you're not really saved unless you also are circumcised, among other things. What he's saying is, after the Lord saved me, I, I did go to Jerusalem, and when I went to Jerusalem and preached the same gospel that's unchanging that I received from the Lord, I preached the same gospel that I've given to you. So, what did they do? They rejoiced. Did they correct him? If He was preaching a false gospel, what would the church have done? They would have corrected him, right? But did they correct him? No. And so then he says later, then I went to the churches in Judea, all around. And what did they do? Even though I didn't get there yet, but they heard they heard stories about how the man who was once persecuting us and headhunting us is now preaching Christ. Did they mourn? If, if, if Paul was preaching a false gospel back then, what would they have done? They would have mourned They would have said, oh no, we got to get to him and correct him. He's preaching a false gospel. But what did the church in Judea do? What did it say? And they glorified God because of me. Never underestimate how your faithfulness, Christian, to the gospel can lead others to glorify God. There's a thousand applications we can make from this. But one of them has to be a willingness for you and I to speak forward the testimony that the Lord has worked in our life, of our former life and our present life. And the immediate application in our church, this is one of the applications we can make, is if you're a man, I, I would encourage you to come and be a part of our men's retreat. It's coming up next month. The ladies' retreat will be the month after that. The reason I say that as well is you, like a bunch of different coals that are getting put together, are going to warm each other and spur each other on. That's what happens at these types of retreats. You hear other people's stories of how the Lord is working in them and also areas where they're struggling, but also areas of victory and encouragement. And you can't help but lead each other to do what the church did when they heard of the testimony of Paul. They glorified God because of me. Your going is going to lead others to glorify God. And by God's grace, that comes back. And our students that go on the retreats, the winter retreat, likewise. Encourage your student to go. And pray that they would come back glorifying God as they hear stories of transformation. God has a way of taking His story as it consumes our stories. And when they're shared with others, leads to life change. It can melt hard hearts. I'll give you an example in the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 2, as Israel ultimately is being faithful and they're taking the land. They go to Jericho. Remember this? I'll give you a minute. you can flip there, if you like. Joshua chapter two, verse 10 through 11. Joshua 2, 10 through 11. And as they go into the land, they end up going into the home of this prostitute, Rahab. This woman is incredible by God's grace. She's saved, and she's included in Jesus' genealogy, and she's included in that Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith text. And so this prostitute, Rahab. The spies come into her home, the Jewish spies, and she says these words. We're going to read together in verse... Dramatic pause? In verse 10 and 11. Notice what she says about what they've heard. And notice what God used to do to their hearts when they hear about the power of God among the nations. Look at this. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Look at this, verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why? For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Disciples, if you find your heart growing strangely dim, look to Christ and dig deeper in relationships where you're going to hear God's glory working through people's stories. And as believers, you're not the center of your story. You're not the center of your former story. The Lord who consumes your story, the plot twist, the hero, is the one that edifies people. So as you share your story, don't feel like you're being selfish. Because your story ultimately points to the Christ that's working in your life. If you don't yet know Christ, listen, if you don't yet know Christ, He is the one who melts nations. and He is the one who melts lives. Come to Christ. And find eternal life. Come to Christ, and live. Have a former story. Beginning today. And our next steps, I've I've phrased them in three different questions. Our next steps, as we've discussed as many times, are the goals. Is that you would be able to take them tangibly? You might, if you came here in a car with other people, discuss them, and hold each other accountable to them suggestions of how we might functionally apply the Word of God we've heard and studied together. And here they are. Number one, what time this week will I write out the five-minute story of my former life? You could write a whole biography, but it might be a little tiresome by the time you get to the plot twist. But how can you summarize it in just a couple paragraphs, your former life? Can you take time this week, schedule time this week to write out your former story? couple paragraphs of your life as you lived it for your own glory that was ultimately transformed by the good news of God's redeeming grace found through his son have you ever written that out before schedule time this week to write that story out and then two applications for us once you do that number one who are two to three people in our church with whom you can share this story Knowing that by God's grace, it might lead them to glorify God. And then secondly, this is the scary part. Who are two to three friends or neighbors or others that you might begin to pray intentionally, that God would give you an opportunity and you would seize that opportunity to share that story of transformation with them this semester and the days ahead? The Lord is in the business of melting hearts and changing lives. He's worthy of our praise. Amen? It's His story that consumes our story. Praise God for that. When you stand together as we sing in response to the Word of God that's been preached? He is worthy of our lives.